Welcome to this month's episode of the Doctors for the Environment Australia podcast, a podcast where we discuss topical issues related to the environment and health. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Our podcast is recorded all over Australia and so we take this opportunity to ask people to reflect on the country they live on and the special places they value. Alrighty, so welcome back to another episode of the DEA podcast. My name is Kaya Ferguson and I am an emergency registrar based on the Sunshine Coast on Gubby Gubby land in Queensland and I am joined with my co-host at the moment, Dr. Bo Frigo. Hello, thanks for having me back again. Um, I am coming to you from the Uganda people in uh, the Gold Coast in Queensland, um, and I am a obstetrics and gynae registrar. And that is going to be very relevant for today's interview, which I'm super excited for. Um, but before we jump into it, we might have a bit of a chat about what's been going on in the news lately. And there's no shortage of climate and health news, I think, at the moment, so it's pretty exciting <laughs> for us to dive into a few little hot topics um, before we get to our interview. Absolutely. So COP26 is coming up um, late October, November in Glasgow. And I saw recently that um, so DEA had a media statement, um, a sort of a joint statement with AMA and a bunch of the other colleges, which is an open letter to um, our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Bo, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I think this is this is a really exciting little announcement and it's something that DEA has been really instrumental in facilitating sort of behind the scenes for a number of months now, um, but essentially wanted to sort of bring together as many of sort of the professional medical colleges as possible to kind of put together one sort of cohesive uh, statement uh, or ask to the federal government and specifically Prime Minister Scott Morrison uh, in to address what has been sort of a growing body of evidence um, in relation mm-hmm. to how much of a global threat um, climate change is to human health and to the health of everyone sort of around the world and um, wanting to utilize that as an avenue to sort of uh, have a conversation with the federal government and to kind of really sort of urge the prime minister to have a more ambitious national plan to protect health for Australians and, and people around the world, specifically sort of addressing greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, so it's pretty incredible. It's, it's been co-signed by the AMA uh, and by us, of course, but then a ton of other professional colleges, including yours and mine. So it's, it's a pretty amazing sort of thing to come together. Yeah, it's an incredible list of colleges that have signed onto it. So I was, I was super stoked to see that. I thought it was interesting. Um, the other article I wanted to talk about today was one that I saw in The Guardian a few days ago about Josh Frydenberg, our treasurer, and talking about or sort of making a case for having net zero emissions by 2050, which I thought was super interesting because in my mind, a lot of the things that have come from Josh Frydenberg in the past haven't been super pro- I don't know, action on climate change. Maybe I just haven't been paying attention to the news much, but this felt like a, a bit of a 
change in topic. Had you seen this article? Uh, I did, yes. So I'd seen it kind of come through initially. And when you suggested that we discuss it today, I thought it was uh, pretty timely and kind of, like you said, fits in well with sort of the other media sort of issues that have come up recently. And I think, I guess you kind of touched a little bit on sort of what's unique about this perspective, but what, like, what is it that is so monumental about hearing something like this come from the federal government? Well, I guess it's, it's kind of a change in tune in that for the Australian government, I think we've heard a lot about how um, coal is so good for the economy and how we need to keep on protecting dirty fuels. And this is really a backflip on that and is talking about how Australia is beginning to be perceived as sort of this country that isn't really serious about climate change and doesn't really want to take action and isn't really committing to going net zero. And that is potentially going to have detrimental economic effects for us. And it talks about how not transitioning to net zero could have domestic consequences, um, given the fact that global capital is starting to back this shift towards going net zero. And this means that we could have reduced access to these capital markets, which means increased borrowing costs, which would impact everything um, from like interest rates on home loans and small business loans to sort of bigger, like large scale infrastructure projects, which I thought was really interesting. And I guess for we're obviously a Doctors for the Environment Australia group and we talk a lot about health and the environment, but it's always super fascinating to hear the economic side of things. And I really love that we're hearing more about how adopting a net zero approach and taking on like solar and other projects and building up a system that is better for the environment is actually also better for the economy. Well, and you're exactly right. And it's an argument that we have been a part of, I think, for many, many years now. And you and I have experienced this firsthand that when we have had conversations in the past with politicians or bureaucrats or people who are involved in sort of making key decisions about policy, both sort of in the public realm and in the private sector, that uh, as much as we would like to think that decisions get made very altruistically, looking at the science, talking about health impacts, et cetera, et cetera. And in some cases they do. What is a, probably a larger driving force is sort of the economic argument that can be behind that. And I think the benefit of the climate movement recently is that the economics is very highly on our side. With renewable totally. <clears throat> energy being so cost effective and fossil fuel industry being so expensive now or changing in terms of how expensive it's becoming, that argument now works in our favor as well. And I think it's <clears throat> it's about, probably about time that the federal government has, has acknowledged that. Um, and to mm. do so publicly, I think, is a good step forward. I think they probably have experienced some extra pressure from the recent meetings they've had in the U.S., you know, with the, the United States having, you know, adopted more um, aggressive net zero targets uh, to, mm. to line up with uh, the COP conference. Um, and so I think Australia has felt a little bit of that pressure and, and is now acknowledging that, okay, well, we do stand out now on the world stage or not having a net zero target by 2050 and and having a clear plan on how we're going to transition more to renewables and all that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, having an economic case that stands with that is incredibly helpful um, for totally. wanting to make those changes. So Yeah. And I guess we, the Australian government still hasn't committed to net zero by 2050 and makes a lot of statements about, oh yes, we need to rapidly reduce our emissions, but not giving any real plan as to how that's going to happen. But with COP26 coming up in November, it's 
going to be interesting to see if those targets really get sort of knuckled down and put in the public eye. So I'm excited for that. And I think probably our next uh, podcast episode will be all about COP26. So that'll be something to look forward to. Well, Kai, I'm very excited for our next guest to join us on the podcast. This person, as you mentioned, is someone who is related to the specialty that I'm in, obstetrics and gynecology, as she is an obstetrician and gynecologist herself. Her name is Dr. Christine Barnden, and she uh, works in Hobart in Tasmania. And she was involved in putting together a resource for pregnant women about air pollution in pregnancy, which I thought was uh, pretty impressive. And I thought was something that would be really cool to chat to her about. We both know her because she is also a Doctor to the Environment Australia member. I first met her when she joined the national board or was, was then called the management committee a few years ago. And she was also the convener for IDA that was in Tasmania. But um, yeah, so that's, the, that's who we have coming up uh, next. And I'm really excited for her to join us in a moment. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited as well. I feel that there was a little bit of talk around the bushfires uh, about the air pollution impact uh, during pregnancy. Um, so I'm excited to flesh that out a little bit more. And we'll jump into the interview just after this break. All right. Well, I'm very happy to welcome Chris to our podcast. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us today. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Um, so essentially, the reason why we brought you on, and you know this already, is that you were involved in putting together a RANSCOG's resource specifically relating to air pollution and, and pregnant women, and uh, which I thought was particularly amazing because I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not aware of any other resource like this that uh, training college or any other sort of obstetrically focused um, institution has put together on this type of thing. Is that, is that your understanding as well? That is my understanding. I did do a lot of research looking around the world, really, to see if there were any other statements by professional bodies. And I was unable to find one, which was part of the impetus behind putting this one together. Awesome. And so do you want to talk us through a little bit of what kind of brought this whole thing together and what made you decide that it was a resource worth putting together? Mm. So I guess the issue first became very, well, first came to the public attention and certainly to my attention during the major bushfires that were on the eastern seaboard in 2019, 2020. And there was a lot of talk in the media about uh, potential effects on pregnancy. Mm. But being involved with DEA at the time and being an obstetrician, I was asked to comment by a few media outlets and I did do some research. As I said at that time, I realised that there was very little public information out there. But I also realised that air pollution, bushfire smoke, but other forms of air pollution really do have um, potentially quite a significant effect on pregnancy. But also that for many women, particularly those who are otherwise healthy and only had brief or mild exposures to air pollution, possibly they didn't need to be as worried as they were. Mm. So it was, it was bringing all of those things together. Perfect. I think it's great that you touch on the bushfires because I was talking about that in the introduction. Um, I was particularly excited 
for this interview because the last I had heard about, or the first time and the last time I had heard about air pollution in pregnancy was during the massive bushfire season we had, as you said, in 2019, 2020. Who did you design this resource for in particular? Is it sort of aimed at those mothers that might be living in Australia during bushfire seasons and wondering um, what they should be concerned about or are there other people that this resource would benefit to? Yes, it's quite a comprehensive resource. There, there is a fair bit of detail. There's a fair bit of evidence that we discuss. It may be more than many women are, are looking for. And we, we have a, a summary at the beginning that summarises the main points for women who are just after a small amount of mm. information. It's also aimed at health professionals mm. who advise women uh, and who may also want a bit more background on the effects of air pollution and the mechanisms of air pollution effects on pregnancy. Yeah, which I think is kind of the amazing thing about it. I mean, we talk about how it's you know particularly unique in that it's uh, kind of combining the air pollution element with a vulnerable group like pregnant women, but really it's a gap in knowledge with health professionals with pretty much all sets of patient groups. Wouldn't you say so? Mm, I certainly, myself, it's not something I ever learned about at medical school. And once I did start to research it, I, I felt really quite, I don't know what the right word is, may, maybe ashamed uh, or upset that I, I did have such, so little knowledge and that I hadn't been talking to people as, as much as I could have been. And so when you kind of delved into that research more and specifically looking through your lens as an obstetrician, what do you think are some of the main takeaway points that you think your research sort of put together for you that you felt like were the key messages you wanted pregnant women to get out of it? I think the key messages were that air pollution certainly can affect pregnancy and that it's something that's worth being aware of and that there are some quite simple steps often to minimise exposure. One of the difficulties we had in designing the resource, though, is that air pollution is... It's really ubiquitous. It's everywhere and and it can actually be very hard to avoid it completely. And one of the issues that we had was that pregnant women do get so much advice from so many quarters about so many things and there's often a feeling of, of guilt and what we didn't want was to exacerbate that problem. You do bring up a really interesting point because I think you're absolutely right. For the pregnant woman, mm. there is no shortage of opinions and different resources and different concerns that they feel like they need to be aware of in order to, you know, give their pregnancy the best possible outcome. And so you certainly want to find the right balance of giving them enough information that they feel like they become more aware of a particular issue that they may not have even acknowledged before, but also not add a whole nother stress onto how they, mm. you know, manage their entire pregnancy. That, that was a, a very difficult balance to achieve. And it's not explicit in the resource, but I do also hope that people who read it, so both pregnant women and their families and health professionals, do take from it that we shouldn't just be leaving it up to pregnant women to avoid the air pollution and sort this out for themselves. But it is a something that as a community and a society, we need to take on ourselves to protect pregnant women and, ch and young children from the effects of air pollution by regulating uh, and reducing air pollution in whatever way, way we can. Absolutely. And I think it's a, a good point as well that 
air pollution does affect lots of different groups of people, not just pregnant women and the young and the elderly. Also, people that have chronic lung diseases or heart diseases or diabetes can be affected by it as well. And even just healthy people that are going for a run along a busy road are impacted. So there's lots of brilliant reasons for why um, it's something to tackle. Would you be able to talk a little bit about some of the specific pollutants you talk about um, in the resource? So I have to say I've come to a very simplistic understanding of air pollution, in fact, which is that no matter what the source, whether it's indoor air pollution from chemicals or home heating, whether it's smoking, whether it's urban air pollution, traffic or bushfires, it's something that's in the air that shouldn't be. And although there are some particular pollutants, such as carbon monoxide, that have a particular specific chemical or poisonous effect, for the majority, it's Mm. really just the fact that the pollutants enter the body and cause irritation. And depending on the size of the pollutants, that the irritation may be in the eyes or the lungs, but that very small particles or gases can actually cause systemic inflammation right throughout the body and Mm. very small particles can cross the placenta and potentially cause a direct toxic effect to the fetus. Yeah. And I thought it was um, interesting as well. I learned a little bit when I was reading this. I didn't previously know that some of the particles, I knew they could become systemic, but it also talks about in the resource how they can lead to increased blood glucose. Um, They can change the regulation of heart rhythms, how your blood vessels function and how your body regulates how it clots. So that was all new to me, which was really interesting and I guess really relevant during pregnancy. Mm, Absolutely. Although one of the messages that we did try to reinforce is that women who are otherwise healthy are really probably minimally affected by air pollution unless it is either prolonged or severe. But women who do have issues with their health, such as background diabetes or high blood pressure or asthma, are people who need to be particularly careful Uh, and to Mm. stay aware of where there might be high levels of air pollution around them. And I think the interesting thing about it is that there's still so much information about this that we have gaps in and, you know, for a variety of exposures to that pregnant women go through as part of the duration of their pregnancy, we don't know exactly the full effect on on them, on their physiology, on on the unborn baby. And I think it's something that I hope we can get to a point where we become a bit more invested in research-wise because a lot of the, what seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of the research that we have is sort of extrapolating from things that we already know about in terms of how air pollution affects physiology. So when you talk about, you know, irritation and inflammation, how particles can enter into bloodstreams, things like that, cross placenta, et cetera. So there are inferences that are made in terms of, oh, well, this will surely negatively impact either the baby or the pregnant woman and that kind of stuff in that regard. But in terms of actual defined uh, information about, well, does it affect, you know, birth rate? Does it, affer- mm. or sorry, by birth rate, I mean, um, uh, like timing of the baby is born or does it affect um, like gestational age? Does it affect their size? Does it affect, yeah. you know, do they have a higher chance of having asthma after they're born? There's so many of those things that we haven't fully been able mm. to correlate. There is actually, there's there's a lot of epidemiological research around the outcomes of pregnancy following exposure to air pollution. One of the things we did have to try to be careful 
around though was that a lot of it comes from places overseas where there are high sustained levels of air pollution that doesn't really reflect the the Australian and New Zealand situation where we're more likely to be exposed to brief events such as bushfires. But there certainly is evidence linking air pollution to decreases in fertility, uh, to miscarriage, to low birth weight, to preterm birth, and also to pregnancy complications such as gestational diabetes and high blood pressure. Certainly for bushfires, um, for those sort of relatively brief but severe smoke exposures, there are definite links to gestational diabetes, preterm birth and low birth weight. And I think that's the particularly interesting thing about that is I think, you know, with, and we see this a lot being health practitioners and trying to convey sort of the health science to people about a variety of climate and health issues is that when you talk sort of in generalities about changes to physiology and things like that, it's probably a bit hard for, you know, the average person to understand exactly how that would affect them. But when you can label it with such significant correlations to things like um, gestational diabetes and preterm birth and, and a small for gestational age, then it becomes a lot more real and certainly a much more compelling story that uh, hopefully makes people a lot more aware of, like you said, that it's not just about their own exposure during their pregnancy, but as a resource for everyone, that this is the actual impact that it can have on the pregnant woman when we're not, as a society, addressing all of these I, I think what's actually particularly impactful to my mind is that it's the effects don't really end with pregnancy, but that air pollution exposure in pregnancy has implications for the child that are can in fact be lifelong. So exposure to air pollution events such as the Hazelwood Mine Fire um, has been shown to increase the rate of childhood respiratory illnesses. Mm. But we also know that preterm birth and low birth weight are both associated with ongoing susceptibility to disease throughout life, such as, once again, diabetes, uh, obesity, heart disease, behavioural and intellectual disorders. And once again, for most people, these effects are really quite subtle, but they they are there. So it's about more than just pregnancy. It's about the lifetime health of a child who might be exposed during pregnancy. And I guess... With all of that information, what are the recommendations then for mothers uh, or for doctors that are advising pregnant women to avoid these air pollutants Mm. or what they can do in their everyday life to protect themselves? Okay, well, I guess we probably need to separate it into, I guess, the routine everyday exposures that people might not be aware Mm. of. Uh, One of them might be that... Air pollution around, say, busy main roads in rush hour can be extremely high, much higher than, say, the nearest air pollution monitoring station might indicate. So one very simple thing that people can do is when they're out walking or riding their bike, just to do that one or two streets back from the main road can make an enormous difference to air pollution exposure. And Mm. also with regards to the more routine everyday sources of air pollution is the things that we might not think about that can just be around the home. So smoking, obviously, but burning candles, grilling or frying if there's not good ventilation or extraction, off-gassing from new furniture or carpets. There's a lot of things around the home that can be avoided and certainly 
it makes it worth just making sure that your home is, is well ventilated if, if you can't avoid some of those things. Yeah, I thought incense was a good one to include in the list. I saw that. I was yeah. like, oh, a lot of people I don't think would think about candles and incense. And it's probably, once again, it's probably very low grade, not worth getting paranoid about and thinking, oh, my goodness, my home's toxic. But certainly <laughs> if you are... Certainly if you are in a um, situation where there is significant outdoor air pollution, such as a bushfire's plume, and you're trying to limit the amount of smoke that's getting into the house by keeping the doors and windows shut, that's a time when you actually do need to also be then more aware of the sources of indoor pollution that you could be minimising. Mm. And and so the I guess the other advice that we should be, we can be giving people around those more unusual events where there is very significant air pollution, once again, such as bushfires, is to stay indoors, to try and keep as much outdoor smoke out as possible, but also to be aware um, that once the smoke plume's passed, some of it will inevitably have come into the house. And it's actually then really important to open up the doors and windows. It's important to realise that masks do not help protect against air pollution unless you've got the respirator masks, the N95 masks that um, completely exclude all particles, but once again are sort of impractical to wear long term and Mm. can certainly, particularly when you're pregnant, make you feel that there is a lot of work of breathing. Air, Air filters can be helpful and that's something that's worth considering. And I think the other thing that really comes out of it is just to be aware of how much pollution there is in the environment and there are apps such as Aerator that can be really helpful to alert people to what the air pollution is likely to be and is forecast to be over the next few days in their area. I think it's a great point as well that you raised earlier that those um, points that sort of collate that information of how much air pollution there is are often not situated on busy roads or in areas where there is a much higher spike of pollution. So it's good for people to sort of be aware of where they're recording that information. Yes. Is there anything about the resource that you think we haven't highlighted yet? I guess it's probably worth mentioning that it can be downloaded from the website of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And I'll also be linking it in the show notes of the episode. Okay, excellent. I guess I just have a question that's more seeing as we have you here. I guess now that you've kind of already started down this journey of, you know, trying to compile information in terms of putting together a resource about air pollution in pregnancy, is there, now that you've started kind of down that path, are there other topic areas or things that you think are missing in terms of other forms of information or research that we could be telling pregnant women? Are there other aspects of sort of the climate and health space that you think, oh, I wish pregnant women could have more information about this that we just don't have yet? Mm. I think that following on from the resource on air pollution, it is now important to also cover pregnancy effects of heat. Certainly as as heat waves become more common. And once again, I think there's probably a lack of appreciation out there that heat can have significant effects on pregnancy, which some of which are similar to air pollution. So we see increased rates of preterm birth and low birth weight uh, in association with heat waves. But once again, also miscarriage, but um, stillbirth and even from heat exposure in early pregnancy, an increased rate of congenital cardiac anomalies. Hmm. I didn't wow. know that. So I think, th- yeah, I agree. I think there's so m- there are many other avenues because 
With a lot of, and maybe you've come across this a fair bit too, because we both do probably a fair bit of media stuff on behalf of DA and a few other things. You often refer to pregnant women as being one of the vulnerable groups that are affected by you know a variety of all these things that we keep talking about. But then I, I realized to myself on occasion, like, but what exactly is it? Like, what are we really needing to convey um, to the public and to pregnant women and to health professionals about how all of these things really do affect pregnant women and in what capacity do they affect pregnant women? Because um, I think if people understood that much more clearly and consistently that maybe we'd see a little bit more momentum in terms of, you know, addressing a lot of our climate health issues that we that we keep fighting for, I think, on a daily basis. Mm. It, look, I certainly noticed that when I was looking at some of the government websites uh, to see what they had to say about pregnancy and air pollution, which was that some of them mentioned that pregnant women were a vulnerable group, but didn't really go into any detail at all as to why or in what way. And there are, I guess there are two main ways in which they are a vulnerable group. One is that the physiological changes in pregnancy, such as increased heart rate and increased work of breathing, make pregnant women more vulnerable just to the general effects of heat and air pollution. But the other is obviously that they have a pregnancy and there is a second person there that mm. can be affected. And in quite a different way, because a fetus or and then a young child, they're, they're developing so quickly. Their organ systems, their brain, everything is, is developing and changing so quickly that they are particularly sensitive and vulnerable to environmental toxins. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's such a unique thing. And it's part of the reason why I think I have such an interest in the specialty itself is that it is unique in that sense that when you advocate for health issues specifically to the pregnant women, you're advocating for the health of more than just one person and, and sort of their potential health. Mm. And that's, uh, that to me, I find particularly compelling, I think, in a lot of discussions I have with people in the public community, friends, colleagues, whatever it is, I think it's, it's something that we need to be probably a bit more um, forthright with and engaging people about, because I think it is something that people have a deep connection with when we talk about sort of the unborn baby and pregnant women. I think one way of looking at it that I find particularly sobering is that climate change is going to have a significant effect on the health of future generations, but exposures in pregnancy now are actually already increasing their vulnerability and decreasing their resilience to the health impacts to come. I think that's a great place to end it actually, Chris, is, is to kind of keep that perspective going. And I um, appreciate you so much for taking the time to do this. I know you've got a lot of things going on and you're very busy, but to, um, I think it was also really, it's an incredible resource that you've put together. You should be really proud of it. Um, I know we all are, and I think it's um, DEA is really thankful that you've put something like that together for, for Renscog, and uh, hopefully there's more to come. Absolutely. I hope so too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the DEA podcast where we have just interviewed Dr. Christine Barnden, an obstetrician and gynecologist, talking about the recent Ranscog paper on air pollution and pregnancy. If you would like to find out more information, there are links in the show notes. And as always, for more information about Doctors for the Environment Australia, resources and what we've been up to, you can go to the website www.dea.org.au and you can also check us out on all the usual social media pages.